Good morning and welcome. We're here this morning to hear argument in the case of A.W. Appellant versus State of Indiana Appellee. It's a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Counsel for A.W. will argue first. And representing the Appellant A.W. Council table, we have Lisa Johnson. Good morning, Ms. Johnson. And Valerie Boots. Good morning, Ms. Boots. Representing the State of Indiana at Council table, we have Justin Robel and Andrew Kobe. Welcome, Mr. Robel and Mr. Kobe. Council, as we've been conducting oral arguments, you'll have approximately two minutes to um, start your argument before we may start asking questions. Council, are you ready to proceed? Yes, sir. Ms. Johnson. Thank you. May it please the court. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The petitions to transfer filed by the parties in this case present two distinct issues. The first is a timely and important question regarding the mens rea requirement when a person is charged with possession of a machine gun and the weapon in question is a semi-automatic handgun that has been converted into a machine gun by way of an aftermarket device known as a Glock switch. In this case, the state did not prove that my client had the required mens rea. The second question is a timely and important issue regarding the application of double jeopardy principles in juvenile delinquency cases. As the Court of Appeals held, double jeopardy principles do apply in juvenile cases and my client's double jeopardy rights were violated. The case began in July of 2021 when a 17-year-old boy was riding in a car with three other people. An officer stopped the car for speeding. A.W. got out of the back seat of the car and ran while, while holding a handgun. He was taken into custody and eventually found true for five separate offenses. Three of those offenses involved his possession of the handgun. The court asked for supplemental briefing regarding the application of Article I, Section 14 of the Indiana Constitution to juvenile cases. The parties agreed that the double jeopardy provision of Article I, Section 14 does apply to juvenile cases. The parties also agree that under this court's decision in Wadle versus State, Section 14 only applies to successive prosecutions or successive delinquency petitions. Another point where the parties are in agreement is that the statutory and common law limits on multiple punishments for a single act collectively known as substantive double jeopardy also apply in juvenile cases. Substantive double jeopardy should apply to juvenile cases for several reasons. Even though multiple true findings in a single proceeding... Didn't the state as much as concede that in their briefing? Yes, they did, Your Honor. Okay. I think you can move on to your next argument then. All right. The Ladle test for substantive double jeopardy requires that the court apply a three-part analysis. 
First, the court looks to the statutory language to determine if the legislature clearly intended for multiple punishments. If not, then the court has to determine if the lesser offense is included in the greater, either inherently or as charged. If the lesser offense is included, then the court looks to the facts as alleged and proven to see if they show that the defendant's actions were so compressed in terms of time, place, singleness of purpose, and continuity of action as to constitute a single transaction. Can you focus your argument specifically on the second step or start with the second step? Yes, Your Honor. With respect to the second step in this particular case, I argued in my brief of appellant that under Wadle, dangerous possession of a firearm was a lesser included offense of possession of a machine gun because both offenses are aimed at reducing gun violence. And I argued that that applied under the third subsection of the statute defining lesser included offenses. Counsel, for that second step, do we only look at the included offense statute or do we uh, consider the charging instrument or other evidence or other facts even if um, the offense doesn't qualify under the included offense statute? If the offense is not statutorily included, under Wadle, the court looks to determine if the lesser offense is factually included in the greater offense. And in this case, the Court of Appeals rejected my argument on that second prong because each offense has a statutory element which is not shared by the other. Instead, the Court of Appeals found that dangerous possession of a firearm was factually included in possession of a machine gun in this case because the means used to commit the lesser offense included all the elements of the greater offense. So, so in, your, in your view, did the Court of Appeals get the right result for the wrong reason? In my opinion, Your Honor, I think both, both approaches are correct. I think that third subsection of the statute is applicable. And the reason I say that is because to hold otherwise, to say that it's only statutorily included if each offense has an element not, it's not statutorily included if each offense has an element not shared by the other, would make Indiana's substantive double jeopardy jurisprudence coextensive with the same elements test under federal law in Blockburger, and Wadle and prior decisions have made it clear that Indiana's substantive double jeopardy is broader than Blockburger. I think the Court of Appeals finding that it was factually included is also correct. So I, I don't, I, I think both approaches are correct and I think both, both approaches lead to the correct result. Counsel, even when we're comparing the, the elements of the two statutes under the included offense statute, um, there's an interesting adjective or a qualifier. It's comparing the material elements. How, how do we decide which elements are material? And I'm particularly focused on the child element of the dangerous possession statute. Is that a material element or not, and why? Your Honor, it has always been my understanding that every statutory element of an offense is a material element. However, with dangerous possession of a firearm, the offense is somewhat unique because 
one of the elements is the um, individual's age. So, you know, by definition, um, trying to say, by definition, if, if a 17-year-old possesses a handgun, that individual is going to be under 18. So it's a material element, but it's just by nature of the statute, it's somewhat unique. Is an element material if it doesn't go to either the mens rea or the actus reus? You know, the, the, the conduct or the mental culpability? My understanding is that any statutory element is a material element. I mean, by definition, an adult could not commit this offense. Could you ever imagine a situation where somebody under 18 had a machine gun that could not be charged, when it's one gun, same time, could not be charged with both offenses? Well, under this court's case law, at least pre-Wadel, and I don't think Wadel changed this in any way, the state can always charge multiple offenses, but the question is whether a conviction or a true finding can actually be entered for the multiple offenses. Do you believe it's implied in the um, uh, unlawful pos possession of, of a machine gun that applies to children and adults, correct? One applies just to children, the dangerous possession, but the machine gun applies to both. Correct. That's, that's my understanding. I, I would agree with that. So you think if you overlap the two charges by saying that one applies to both and one applies just to children, that it covers all the material elements of, bo of both and the other one, the um, dangerous possession is always going to be lesser included? I think so because under that third prong of the statute, they're both aimed at reducing gun violence. I suppose there could be a scenario where, this is, I mean, this is pretty far afield, but I suppose there could be a scenario where a child possesses, you know, maybe not simultaneously, and then they wouldn't overlap. But in this case, we're talking about one act that the possession of one, one firearm for 30 seconds. Did you review the Demby versus State case? It was the Court of Appeals case, which talked about defined included offenses being in every scenario that proving the elements of one offense would necessarily prove the other. Are you familiar with the Demby case? I am familiar with that case. Why would this case not fit in with that? Well, I think it would. The state argued on transfer that the Court of Appeals reverted to the actual evidence test of Richardson, which Wadle overturned. However, even though the Court of Appeals discussed the evidence and the means used to commit the offenses, it did not revert to Richardson. Instead, the Court of Appeals correctly found that dangerous possession of a firearm was factually included in this instance, where both offenses were based on AWs possessing the same weapon for 30 seconds. With respect to the sufficiency of the evidence, when a police officer collected the handgun, he noticed a small black box that was attached to the rear slide of the weapon. 
The officer did not know what the black box was, but he did not think it was of any consequence. Later, two detectives examined a photograph of the handgun. One of them thought that the black box might be a Glock switch. A Glock switch is a small aftermarket device that converts a semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic one. Glock switches are fairly new, and this was the first one that the detective had ever seen. <clears throat> the detectives conferred with a ballistics expert who confirmed that the small black box was, in fact, a Glock switch. As a result, A.W. was found to have committed an act that would constitute possession of a machine gun as a level five felony if committed by an adult. In order to make this true finding, the trial judge had to find beyond a reasonable doubt that A.W. knew that, the, that he possessed a machine gun. Possession of a machine gun is not a strict liability offense. In other words, the state had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that A.W. knew that the small black box made the semi-automatic handgun into a machine gun. The Court of Appeals effectively found that the offense was a strict liability offense by finding that A.W.'s exclusive possession of the weapon supported a reasonable inference that he knew it was a machine gun. However, Exclusive possession of contraband does not automatically show that a defendant had the mens re for a possession offense when the illegal nature of the contraband is not immediately apparent. This is not merely a request to reweigh the evidence. The question is whether the evidence supports a reasonable inference of guilt. The police officer who collected the Glock had no idea what the Glock switch was. How is that relevant to, to what your client knew? It's relevant to what my client knew because if a trained police officer with years of experience didn't know what the tiny black box attached to the firearm was, then it isn't reasonable to presume that a 17-year-old child knew. A.W. did have exclusive possession of the weapon. However, as the Court of Appeals noted, he only had exclusive possession of it for about 30 seconds while he was running. We don't know what happened immediately before he exited the car. We don't know if the weapon was in his possession at any time before he exited the car. We don't know who attached the Glock switch to the weapon, and we don't know when it was done. There were three other people in the vehicle, including one adult. Any one of those individuals could have handed the weapon to A.W. and told him to run with it. When the Court, court of Appeals found that the evidence was sufficient, the Court of Appeals relied heavily on evidence of flight. Flight can be circumstantial evidence of guilt. However, case law cautions against attributing too much probative force to flight. Flight has no probative value unless it appears that the accused fled to avoid arrest for the specific crime charged. In this case, A.W.'s flight could have just as easily been motivated by a desire to avoid arrest for illegally possessing a handgun as a minor and without a license. His flight does not show that he knew 
that the tiny black box attached to the handgun made it into a machine gun. Is that really, though, our question when we're reviewing the decision of the trial court? Well, trial courts, I have about seven seconds left. Would you like me to go ahead and answer? Please. Trial courts do have great deference in determining facts and assessing credibility. However, there's a, there's a minimum level of proof that is required for sufficiency of the evidence. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal, Ms. Johnson. Mr. Robel. Uh, may it please the court. I'd like to start by saying that I don't think we conceded or came close to conceding in our briefs that substantive double jeopardy applies to juveniles. As we said uh, in our uh, supplemental briefing that uh, it, it is a issue that we've raised several times under Richardson because a uh, fact finding is different than an adjudication and you don't need the separate convictions for the juvenile adjudication. Um, admittedly, we didn't raise that issue here because we've made that argument repeatedly in the past and this court has repeatedly denied transfer on it. Uh, and it seems like, if anything, it would even be less of an issue now that this doesn't have a constitutional di dimension. But I, I, I don't think there's any really need to address that. But if the court wanted to, it would be your standard of fair treatment uh, under A&M uh, deciding which rights apply to juveniles. Um, but I think the main issue here is that the court should apply its standard from Wadle and find that AW's separate true findings for dangerous possession of a firearm and possession of a machine gun can stand. Even though both true findings are based on one act of possessing a gun, separate true findings are allowed under Wadle because the charges have different elements and are not part of a progressive statutory scheme and thus are not included offenses. Wadle's standard provides that when the offenses are not included, there is no violation of double jeopardy. The now vacated opinion by the Court of Appeals reverted to either the actual evidence test or some sort of same act test, but th that is no longer the test. Wadle now looks to the evidence at trial if and only if there's an included offense. This court stated, if one offense is included in the other, either inherently or as charged, then the court must examine the facts underlying those offenses. So counsel, why isn't this inherently included? I mean, if a, if a misdemeanor battery is an included offense of a battery with bodily injury, then why isn't, uh, in, in the context of a delinquent act, um, the mere possession of a, of a firearm, um, an included uh, offense, if you will, again, in the context of a delinquent act, of the possession of a machine gun? Because one is a uh, special offense we've created only for juveniles, so that, that becomes an element that it must be a juvenile under the dangerous possession. And the other one requires the machine gun, which it could be any gun under dangerous possession. So under Blockburger and the included, the elements section of our now included offense uh, stat that we're focusing on, they're different elements. They're different offenses, different harms. It is, a, I can acknowledge, it is admittedly exhausting to try, to try to figure this out in the, um, in, in the constitutional context. I mean, 
why does it matter ultimately if, if, if the juvenile, if there's a true finding on possessing a machine gun, um, why does it matter if there's also a true finding on a misdemeanor offense of possessing a, a firearm? Well, I don't think it does, and that's why in the past we've argued that dispositions are different than true findings. A true finding is probably more analogous to a jury verdict that, if it's not reduced to a conviction, just doesn't matter as far as double jeopardy. And so that's what we've argued in the past, and we touch on that in the supplemental briefing, but that wasn't the issue of the supplemental briefing. I, I think it's important there's been some confusion by the lower courts under what I think this court was today calling the second step where we look at whether or not it's included offense. And I, I, th that is one of the areas of confusion because in the Wadle opinion, it refers to that third, what I think people are now calling the third step as the second step. Uh, but if we're looking at that step where we look at the included offense statute, um, some courts, including this one here in Phillips and Harris, have looked to the evidence at trial. But it was very clear, I think, in the Wadle opinion that that's not proper. It's, you said, if neither offense is included either inherently or as charged, there is no violation of double jeopardy. But if one offense is included in the other, either inherently or as charged, then the court must examine the facts underlying those offenses as presented in the charging instrument and adduced at trial. So if we, so if we find um, the, uh, the juvenile offense to be included, um, would we, would we be backing away from Wadle? Would we be wading back into the Richardson waters if we, if we came out that way? Um, I think as long as you did it under that included statute, it would be consistent with Wadle, if you could do it without looking at the evidence at trial, uh, at the hearing, because that's where I think you are going against Wadle and doing the same act analysis, this, whether you want to call it Guyton or Richardson. An opinion as to whether or not that would injure the law if we were to look at this as an included offense. To Justice Massa's question, and, and I, I take your response, it doesn't really matter, but are there instances where it really might matter uh, if we were to sort of conflate the two and find, yeah, this is, this is in fact included? Um, yeah, I, I think there are times that it could. I think Harris might have been an example where it could create a different result, uh, or in that case, the um, well, at least looking at the opinion, it looked like that, because that was a case involving intimidation and pointing of a firearm. And I think if you looked at the evidence, you would find that they, there was overlap in all the elements. But as charged, inherently, there was not. Uh, but in this case, there, I don't think we get anywhere near that. Here, the offenses are not included. If we look at 35, uh, 31.52168, we get three areas where things can be included under uh, the matching of the elements, uh, one being attempted, the other, and then the statutory scheme with a increased risk of harm or culpability, and we don't have anything like that in this case. So that should be the end of the analysis under Wadle. What, what about that third subpart, though, where, where the included offense is just a less serious um, type of offense than the other one. So in, in Wadel, we found there was a double jeopardy violation with uh, convictions for both OWI with serious bodily injury and leaving the scene of an accident with OWI with serious bodily injury. So one thing I struggle with is if that's double jeopardy, why wouldn't this be double jeopardy too? Well, I think what was happening in Wadel was the first step, not the third step, because you had all the elements of the OWI being an enhancement of the leaving the scene of the accident. So the elements completely line up there. It wasn't taking it to the third step. 
where one of the elements that enhanced the leaving the scene was the OWI. I think we specifically said it was the third step. Not, not the third step, but the, the third prong of the included offense statute. Wasn't that the basis for the double jeopardy violation in Wadle? Well, I, I think it makes more sense to look at it under the first part. Yeah, the opinion does say that. But again, we're looking, be, I think it gets kind of confusing when you have something like that where it has a gradation within the statute, which is what the third step should be focusing on. But here, the gradation that increased it was having all the elements of the other crime involved. I just want to make sure I'm fine. Is, is it your position that Wadle misapplied the Wadle test? No. <laughs> I'm saying it's more, it's kind of complicated uh, applying something like that where what causes the gradation within the delineation within a statute, the progressive nature of the statute, is all the elements of another statute uh, causing it to be increased. So I, I think it might be a combination of subsection one and three. Um, and as this court notes in Wadel, this is from a model code that the state adopted in the 1970s. And I think that's how other states have looked at it too, that when the legislature has decided to uh, have a progressive thing in the statute, then it can be lesser included if it's a lower level within that statutory counsel, scheme. Counsel, does, does a juvenile commit illegal possession or dangerous possession of a firearm? by possessing a machine gun? Yes, it, but they're separate offenses. But you, you would have all the elements under that alone, and you would have all the elements for the other crime too. And sometimes when you're looking under Blockburger kind of test, which is the elements, the first part of our statute for included offense, uh, you, you're going to have that. You're going to have an act that's both um, <clears throat> possession of uh, stolen property and theft because those happen at the same time or an act might be rape and incest it, but they're separate crimes separate harms that we're trying that the legislature has decided to address and treat separately and that's something that Indiana has done different from basically all other states under Richardson what are the separate harms here in the two statutes one is the child with a uh, gun which uh, the immaturity of the child uh, we've decided that they are not trusted with um, guns. And the other one is the inherent danger of a machine gun for anybody, whether they're a child or an adult. So you couldn't punish an adult twice for this, but you, you can punish a juvenile twice. Well, but there are other things that you could punish an adult for. If they were a serious violent felon in possession of the machine gun, you would have possibly two convictions. In looking at the factually included, can you ever imagine a scenario where uh, somebody under 18 would have a machine gun that would not be able to be charged with both and looking at the test under Denby. Um, and Denby looks to whether or not all the elements are the same. Because I, I look at the, uh, the machine gun, it is sort of one's a child and one's a child and an adult. Correct? Because the machine gun applies to children and adults. Applies to everybody. Correct. Right. And there are exceptions under the dangerous possession that allow children to possess guns in some situations. And I, I'm not familiar enough with all of the intricacies of federal law to know whether or not a child could ever legally possess under one of those subsections. Where and a machine gun's in. always going to be considered a dangerous, right? Correct. And under well, I'd like to change direction briefly. We don't reach the double jeopardy question if we conclude there's insufficient evidence on the machine gun count. Talk about the, the, uh, the, the knowingly uh, intentional element. Why, why is there adequate 
um, mens rea here? Well, it, it's simply a question of fact that was properly left to the uh, fact finder, and it should be properly dispatched as that. Uh, there was a lot of evidence here from which the uh, judge could infer that he would know that he was in possession of this gun. Uh, we, there's case law saying you can assume that people uh, understand, know the nature of things in their uh, possession. Like we, if someone's in possession of a bag of cocaine, you can assume they understand it's cocaine. It's a reasonable inference. Other inferences are possible, and if they wanted to uh, argue that or present evidence that they're because of the special circumstances of this case, that's not a reasonable inference. They could have. Did, but does, does what you suggest impermissibly shift the burden of proof? No. Mm -hmm. that they could have put forward evidence that he didn't know. I mean, isn't that putting on the defendant, the, very, the, the juvenile, the very uh, burden that uh, the due process prohibits? No, because you still need to have circumstances where a fact finder can find beyond a reasonable doubt that they did have the requisite mens rea. And we have so much here with the child holding this gun, which had been modified in several ways uh, to have a 30 gun, a 30 round extended magazine, a laser sight. Uh, he ran from the police officers. Uh, he had $3,000 in his pocket, or I, I think the testimony at the hearing was a significant amount of money. Um, so all these uh, situations on top of him being the person who was in possession, and as far as we know, he possessed it long before. They're asking for other possible inferences, but that's not the more reasonable inference. But wasn't the charging information here amended from what was the original count to include the... The machine gun, correct. And isn't that because it wasn't obvious to either the prosecutor and or the police that this was, that this Glock switch transformed it into a, an automatic weapon, a machine gun? Well, I do think at the beginning the... Uh, Speedway town police officers had not seen one before, but then when they talked to the so American... Why isn't there force then to the, the uh, AW's argument that if, if these officers on the street didn't realize what this was, a 17-year-old who possessed it for 30 seconds doesn't necessarily know that either? Well, we, A, we don't know it was 30 seconds. He could have, it could have been his gun. Oh, he could what have made does the record tell us? What, what does the record tell us about how much time he possessed it? Well, he was seen by the police officer possessing it for 30 seconds, but this is not a case where there's evidence that it was thrust upon him and he only possessed it 30 seconds. He may have bought the gun himself. He may have bought the Glock switch separately and done everything himself. He may have had it for years, for all you know. Right. And I think that's the important difference between this child and the police officer. We don't know whether or not this town police officer ever has come across it would come across in his daily work, whereas we know this child was in possession of a Glock switch. And you think that's good enough? I, do, I think it is, yeah. I think it's a reasonable inference, and that's what the judge here went through and explained, that based on his possession, based on his activity, based on running from police officers and the large amount of money, that a reasonable inference uh, was that he knew the nature of it. And I think that's correct, because if not, uh, how are we ever going to, uh, are we going to constantly question whether or not someone knows the cocaine is cocaine or the contraband is contraband? So, uh, Mr. Robel, I, I, I think I'm concerned about the same issue. It's what I asked Ms. Johnson about when she was running out of time. Um, it's troubling because of the length of time that this item was in possession of the, the juvenile. Um, as to the Glock switch itself, though, it's, it, it, record seems to indicate that <clears throat> this is something that can be created by a 3D printer. Uh, this is something that, it, it, what would we do 
if we were to take away this discretion in this context from the trial court judge? I mean, it seems to me an issue that we could really rule either way. I don't find a case that I think is completely on all fours with it. Why in this case is it important to preserve the trial court's discretion on an issue like this as opposed to say, no, this is just insufficient. There's no way. First, just uh, for briefly to push back on your uh, initial point about it only being 15 seconds. Again, we don't know how long this child was in possession of this gun. But brief, I think... Brief time. No, it could have been days, years, weeks. We know he had it for those 15 seconds and sometime before he... It was his gun, as far as we know. You know, that's a reasonable inference under the situation is that he was running with his own gun and didn't just possess it in those 15 seconds, but he possessed it prior. There's no evidence contrary to that. So in this case, that actually, in your view, and we're looking at the trial court's dis discretion, this actually merits in favor of, we, we got to go with his, his call on the ground? Well, no, we go on the reasonable, well, the, the call on the ground of the tr trial judge, the fact finder, yeah, in this case. But I, I think it's also important to recognize how dangerous these Glock switch modifications are, like our legislature recently did with the enactment of House Bill 1365, which has already been signed by the judge, that now going forward, as of April 20th, uh, that small plastic box you described alone is considered to be a machine gun under Indiana law and alone would support the uh, level five felony for anyone in possession of it. So it's, and they did that because of the great serious harm that could be caused by these modified weapons. Um, if there are no other questions, the state is not asking for any change in law. Instead, it is simply asking for this court to apply your Weidel test and affirm the true findings here. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Johnson, rebuttal. Thank you. I think another way to look at the double jeopardy question in this case, and I think it ties in with uh, Chief Justice Rush's question about uh, Demby, is if this case had been before a jury, which we all know is impossible because it was a juvenile case, but for the sake of discussion, say we're in an alternative universe where jury trials happen in juvenile court. If this individual had been charged with possession of a machine gun and not charged with the dangerous possession crime, if trial counsel had asked for an instruction on the lesser included offense of dangerous possession of a firearm, I don't think there's any question under Indiana law that he would have been entitled to that instruction because it's a lesser included, factually lesser included offense. And therefore what? And therefore, I'm sorry, what was the question? And therefore what? He would have been entitled to that instruction and therefore what, what follows from that? Therefore, it was, it is a factually lesser included offense which satisfies the second prong of the Weidel test. And, and it would be a violation of substantive and it would be a, Yes, that's correct, Your Honor. It would and be a violation of both or true substantive. Um, and I do want to reiterate that Indiana does go beyond Blockburger. 
I think the courts made that clear over and over in Wadle and, and prior decisions that it's not a simple matter of looking at the statutory elements. We also look at whether things are factually included. As a practical matter, I think under, even though the Wadle test is different from Richardson, I think they are very similar. And as a practical matter, I think both cases are going to, uh, or under both analysis, most cases are going to come out the same. I don't, I mean, even though Wadle overturned Richardson, I don't believe the court intended to uh, make a dramatic change in our substantive double jeopardy jurisprudence. As far as the knowingly or intentional element for the possession of a machine gun, I don't think it was a reasonable inference that, that the gun belonged to him. We don't know why this 17-year-old kid jumped out of the back seat of a car with a handgun in his hand and ran from it. But I think it's at least equally likely that it wasn't his weapon and somebody dropped him in his lap and told him to run with it because if it was his gun, the most logical way to avoid detection wasn't to jump out of the car and run down the street while holding the gun in his hand. It would have been to shove the gun under a seat and sit quietly in the back seat of a car. So I don't think it's a reasonable inference that it was his weapon. And I just wanted to point out that this court cannot dilute the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt just because an offense is potentially serious. Um, individuals are entitled to meaningful appellate review. Is it reasonable to infer that, that uh, A.W. had any knowledge about any aspects of the gun? So, for example, I think it had an extended magazine. Is it a reasonable inference that he knew that there was a 30-round extended magazine or that it was a real gun versus a, a toy gun? Or Is there anything we can infer about his knowledge about the gun that's reasonable? I think it's reasonable to infer that he knew it was a real gun. Beyond that, I don't think you can infer that he knew anything about the particular characteristics of this weapon when all the evidence shows is that he had it in his possession for 30 seconds while he was running. So, counsel, is your position that the, the presumption of innocence requires the, that we indulge in a blanket presumption that he didn't know uh, that this gun was so modified? The question is whether the evidence supports a reasonable inference that he knew that this tiny black object the size of a quarter converted this machine, this semi-automatic weapon into a machine gun. Anything further? Thank you. All right. Thank you, Council. Well, Council, we appreciate your briefing and your argument on this issue and appreciated your providing the supplemental briefing at the request of the court. We will be deciding the case and issuing an opinion in due course. That concludes the oral argument. All right.